episode 56. And it hurt. <laughs> People beat me. And I was like, this is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. And sure enough, I never became a ninja. You know, it was just not my thing. But when you, when you find your thing, it's worth it. I'm Elizabeth Johnston, and I'm here to help you unlock your creative potential so that you think, feel, and do better in life and at work. Welcome to the Own Your Creativity podcast. This is the place where it all starts, where you begin taking your place in the world, where you say, enough is enough. It's time for me because you know that the more you reclaim and express your creativity, the more you can live the life you were meant to. That's my mission, to provide you with a place to get inspired to own your creativity. The more you listen to the show, the more you'll see how possible it is to own your creativity. And then when you do that and you stand up for your creativity, you join me in leading by example to make a difference in the world. If you believe in the power of creativity, I invite you to show that support in a tangible way today by becoming a patron of the Own Your Creativity podcast. To find out more about how you can join the creativity movement, go to bit.ly forward slash creativity patron. That's bit.ly forward slash creativity patron. There you will find a whole host of affordable options plus lots of rewards. Helping to spread the word about how important creativity is so that we think, feel, and do better in life and at work starts just at $1. Before we start with today's show, though, I want to thank Lori Mackey for her patron pledge. I also want to thank all 1,301 followers of the show. And if any of my followers are listening today, or if you are listening for the first time, I encourage you to take the next step and support the show by becoming a patron. Just go to bit.ly forward slash creativity patron. And I look forward to thanking you on the next show while sending you some pixie dust too, just for the fun that's in it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm really excited to be talking to Gaia B. Aman today. She was born and raised in Italy and moved to the United States in her 20s to pursue her PhD in molecular biology. She's currently a professor of biology at Duville College in Buffalo, New York, where she was voted the Professor of the Month by her students. Her research and commentaries have been published in prestigious peer-reviewed international journals, including Nature. Aman is mostly passionate about people and the struggles they face to embrace life. Her highest hope is to reach and help as many as she can through her writing, as well as her teaching. She authored the Italian saga, an irreverent series of humorous and insightful young adult novels taking place against the gorgeous backdrop of northern Italy and linked a sci-fi romance reflecting on our current political situation. Among her favorite authors are J.K. Rowling, Jandy Nelson, Neil Gaiman, Chuck Palahniuk, Kurt Vonnegut, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Antoine Saint-Exupéry. Welcome to the show, Gaia. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So it's I find it so fascinating that you kind of have these parallel careers going at the moment with your teaching in molecular uh, in molecular biology and in writing young adult novels as well as your blog. So can you tell us what was the inspiration or the impulse for you to start writing fiction? Um, I 
think that the question should be, what was the inspiration to start doing science? Because um, <laughs> since I was a kid, I was a bookworm and I loved reading and I loved writing and it's always been my escape and the place where I felt safe. So the transition was more going into college where after a high school um, dedicated to literature and foreign languages, it's a little different in Italy. I told my dad that I wanted to be a writer. And my dad is an engineer. And he looked at me and said, well, that sounds great. But how about getting a job that pays the bills? <laughs> and so I decided that I was going to impress him. And so I went for genetic engineering. Wow. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was, I don't know what I was thinking. It was a crazy leap. And uh, my first semester was rough. Uh, there was uh, some crying. But eventually, I fell in love with science. And I really, really liked it. So I feel that this has been a dichotomy that has characterized the rest of my life. Huh. Um, yeah, but then eventually, you know, I've always been, I think, very creative or I miss creativity in my life. And so once I had a career that was pretty well established, I decided that I really needed that back in my life. And so I went back to writing. What, why did you feel that you needed it back in your life? What was going on? Um, I think... Many things happen in my life, but the major trigger for me going back to actually writing the books was finally being happy. I feel that for most of my life, I had struggled and I, I'm pretty confident that I can say I made the majority of mistakes that anyone could possibly make. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, eventually I ended up being happy and it wasn't by chance and it wasn't by luck. I really think that it was a lot of work. And a lot of thinking on my part and figuring out what I wanted. And when it worked, I was so excited that I felt that I wanted to share these and let people know that it's not something that falls in your lap. It's not someone that you should be waiting for. It's really hard work. And so I think this was what got me to write again. And so you wanted to show people that they can create their own life? Is that what you wanted to do? I don't know. I... I I feel that there are so many things that are out of our control. So I wouldn't say that people can create their life. There are circumstances that are terrible. Uh, you know, people get incurable diseases or they get assaulted or terrible things happen. But I really think that this has nothing to do with happiness. I do believe, I don't believe that everything happened for a reason, but I do believe that being happy has a lot to do with our ability to respond to situations and what we make of what happens to us. I would say. And so how was your first novel um, a reflection of that belief? Well, it's a funny story because, of course, when I started writing my first book, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and I yes. didn't even know <laughs> I was writing a book, right? So it started as this stream of consciousness um, type of story, right? Talking about when I thought the last important beat of my life you know, began that had to do with becoming happy. And then I kept backtracking and say, but this doesn't make any sense unless I tell, you know, how I got there and how I got there. And so I kept going back in time. And so the first time that I put, you know, my fingers on the keyboard, I think I started writing something that began 10 years early or earlier than when I was writing. And then slowly I went back to the 80s and when I was a child. And eventually the first book that I wrote deals with my childhood and it didn't talk necessarily about all the things that I wanted to talk about. And that's why eventually it became two series actually of books. And 
each book deals with very different topics, which are very dear to me. So the first book ended up talking about childhood and why we lie to our children, thinking oh. that we're doing them a favor. You know what I mean? But, yeah, yeah. And how do we tell them things like, oh, you'll understand when you grow up. And next thing you know, your teen daughter is pregnant, you know, and then you're like, right. oh, I wish we I answered that question when she asked it, you know. So I, I think it was a reflection on what it means to be a child and what it means to be a parent. And um, somebody described it as a romp through childhood in Italy. And I think it's a really fun, exhilarating book. But it also, I hope, makes the reader reflect on why we treat children as if they were kind of dumb. I don't mm-hmm. think children are dumb. They're just naive, you know. So I think mm-hmm. if we were brave enough to answer questions very plainly and, you know, in a sensible way, I think we would do them a favor. I think that too often we reflect our fears in the way that we talk to children. And I don't think that's helpful. You know, your story is reminding me of a story for children um, called Gartman's Summer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, it's a, it's a, a, the summer vacation for mm-hmm. Gartman. And he, um, stays with his aunts. They always go and visit their, their the aunts and they're really old. And he he's, I think, about, I don't know, six or seven or something like that in, in mm-hmm. the story. And um, and the whole book is about him asking questions about what's going to happen when they die, you know, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it and it treats um, Gar- Gartman as a as um, not as an adult, but as somebody who is aware of the situation. He may not have the language or the sophistication, mm-hmm. but the the writer really seemed to um, respect that that children need to know and they need to have answers mm-hmm. and that sugarcoating it or ignoring it isn't going to you know, help. And, and uh, right. it's, it's such a different approach, this, like, you know, between North American uh, stories for children and, and European, I found it was just such a, a difference. So it's interesting to hear that, that you had that same sort of feeling about uh, the importance of telling the truth to, to children in a way that they can, they can process it. Absolutely. I think that my books are more about love and sexuality in mm-hmm. particular, and I don't think they're for children. They're really for adults. Yeah. Uh, so the first book in particular was very different because there are not too many books for adults that talk about children. Yeah. But um, So the first book is about this kid really running into situations that may be okay or not. So we, they're friends. The kids are about 10. They find a porn magazine, which is hysterical, of course, because they're, you know, it's awkward and they feel guilty. They're curious what, what's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is what starts the whole book and how the different kids react to this and eventually how these triggers, in a way, they're asking questions about this mysterious practice, right, that nobody talks about and parents are very awkward. And then the second book is about first love and first kisses and how parents freak out, you know, when this happens to your kid and your kid is 12 and she has a crush on uh, the lifeguard, you know, who's 17. And of course, as any mom should, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a meltdown moment. And, and then the third book is actually kind of a teen romance where two of the characters that grew up together and they're very different. One is kind of a troubled kid, you know, a dark kid that has a difficult childhood. And the other one is the main character who's this super feminist bookworm, you know, and how they end up being friends and really helping each other out. And then the fourth book, which is the last in the series, or at least in the first series, is about making love for the first time. 
And I love romance. I love feelings and I, I love feeling, you know, when I read a book. But I am so bored of these cheesy stories with these perfect characters that make love for the first time at 15 and it's amazing. You know, I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness, it wasn't like that for me. It was a disaster and everything was wrong. And, um, and so I tried to write a book that is candid and um, I think it's a very funny and it's a very sweet book and I think it reflects and wraps up all the things that I've been talking about. Why don't we talk to our children about sexuality and what is okay and what is not okay and what they should feel and you know whatever we think it's important and then they'll figure it out but I feel that I was so embarrassed and in general my generation I, I feel that we were all waiting for charming prince to make us happy you know and, and yes. that was a big big problem to begin with and second I feel that we were more embarrassed to buy condoms than to have sex <laughs> and that's obviously a really really big issue and as an educator I'm on a crusade to put an end to these. Like we should just be, just answer questions. You know, it doesn't matter how young your kid is, but you don't have to make it weird. I also teach biology, so I guess that makes it a little bit easier. But just just answer the questions, you know, and I think that would be really helpful. So you said that you found fiction writing has helped you find a renewed purpose for your scientific research. How so? And vice versa, I would say. Um I would say that science really taught me the rigor and gave me the stamina to just go back to that manuscript and never give up. You know, you just add a little bit every day and you go at it and you make it better. And the other way around is that science can be really frustrating. It's like baking a cake that never comes out right and you oh, never no. get to eat it. You know, so it's just you do the same experiment 150 times, you know, and you get 149 different results and then you try to understand what's wrong. And, you know, it, it's very, very difficult. And I feel that um, creative write, writing got me, gave me the options of an outlet where you can make things happen and you actually see a result a lot faster and you can make an impact on people uh, in a faster way and in a more emotional way, I think that science can be very alienating, you know, when you're stuck in your lab all day, yeah. <laughs> every day, and you don't talk to anyone. I, I feel that fiction really helped me filling that gap. But when you're a writer, you're, there you are, yeah, alone in your office, writing and writing by yourself. Isn't it just as lonely? <laughs> no, uh, there are all these characters talking in your head and arguing about what they should be doing or not. So, yeah, I know that's scary and it sounds really <laughs> weird. Uh, but then there are writers group and, you know, you meet other writers and you read them uh, your work and you get criticized and you criticize theirs. And honestly, I have a blast doing these. And, and, and then there are book fairs and then you meet readers and there are book signings. And even just through my blog and I have a couple, there's one on Tumblr and then I have my regular one, like people that write to me and telling me how their the book that I wrote changed them and how they could relate or not, you know. And I think this is amazing that the fact that I can connect with people that I've never seen before. And as much as I write fiction, they end up knowing me really well, you know, because I really feel, you know, like, you know, in Harry Potter, when um, Voldemort puts a little piece of his soul in a horcruxes. So it's these like little objects that have a little bit of his soul so that he can never be killed. I, I feel the very same way about books. Even if you're writing fiction through your voice, through your characters, there's, there, it, they say so much about you, you know, and so I think I really connect with people. 
And you said that you participate in writer circles. You share your writing with other writers and get feedback. Yes. And um, how? At what stage of the writing do you start sharing it? And and how is it helpful for you? I normally share when I think the book is done. So I have a draft that I consider the best I can do. It's my final draft. And then I start reading it to my group. And I do, you know, one chapter a week or a couple of chapters a week. We, we meet every week. And then they let me know if, first of all, you know, big things. Oh, my goodness, I was so into it. I can't wait to know what's happening next. Or these dragged. Like, right. I, I got what you were saying after two pages. You don't need the third. Or... <laughs> I was confused. Wait, who's talking, you know, or wait, is this happening? Or sometimes, I mean, I am Italian, clearly. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I still have an accent, but sometimes I do say things that don't mean what I think they mean, you know, so they're like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> or sometimes I use a word that for me is perceived in a certain way, because in Italian, the corresponding word is very common, but maybe in the United States is very archaic, you know, right. nobody knows what it means. And so I'm like, okay. Or sometimes, you know, just typos and editing and little things too. And, and so I, I find it really, really helpful. And then after that, you have a publisher? And you, I you actually it? have my own imprint and okay. publishing company. Yeah, it's called Cookie Publishing. And um, for my new series, I'm actually looking out to see if I can get like a bigger publisher just because it will help with distribution. But I actually very much love doing the publishing part myself as Why much so? as it's a ton of work. Because um, I'll give you an example. So uh, after, and I, I, I don't want to talk about politics, but after the presidential election, I was a little stumped by the general anger and, and situation and things didn't go the way I thought they would. And I just couldn't write anymore for a little bit. I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't feel right. And so from November to December, and I was actually publishing the last book in the series. So I had the book launch and I did all of that. But then I had, I went back home for Christmas to Italy to see my family and on Christmas night, I had this dream that was very, very vivid. And when I woke up, I couldn't stop thinking about that. And I turned it into a plot of a book. And that's a sci-fi romance that I wrote that would allow me to talk about anger and why people from either side, you know, of this election got so angry and aggressive with each other and what I think is the issue. And I wrote this book in 10 days. Wow. This never happened, right? It yeah. never happened to me. So I started writing the book pretty much. On January 2nd, I published the book. It was available on Kindle on January 31st. Wow. And this involved, right? So this involved a number of people that were like, I'll, I'll read it. Just send it to me. I'll edit it overnight. You know, and it was amazing. And, and it was possible just because I did it myself. Like this would never, ever be possible in traditional publishing. But so I could have the book out right after the inauguration. And so that, that was incredible, I think. Mm. And so then, you know... Oh, I'm sorry. Like, I just get a lot of freedom with, you know, covers and the process in general. So it, it, you say that it wasn't until you started writing novels that you gained a voice and the courage to extend your sort of neutral scientific writing into penning opinion pieces. So, so how, how was it that you found that voice and courage? Um, I think my husband. I really think that I wrote for myself. Um, for me, it's kind of like therapy, and I put my heart on paper thinking that nobody would ever read it, and then he insisted. At this point, I had already written four books, and I was writing all the time, and so he insisted. and was like, I really want to read your books. You know, what, what is this all about? 
And so I gave him the first book and I was very hesitant and he loved it. And, and he doesn't have a background in writing. And he was just telling me, I, I have no idea if this is good or bad, but I loved it. And I loved <laughs> learning about you. And I, I just can't wait to read more. And I really think you should share it and see if there's any merit in this. And so that's when I found a writer's group and I started reading it to the group. And I was so ashamed and I was so embarrassed. And, you know, here I am, this molecular biologist with an Italian accent, you know, <laughs> writing novels. And, and they loved it. And they were very helpful. And the first draft that I brought to them was honestly terrible because <laughs> I had footnotes in my book. You know, I'm a scientist. So, <laughs> so they told me that was not a good idea and that I should integrate whatever information I wanted in the narrative. And, and I did. And it took me, I think, two years to turn whatever little monster I had into a novel. And, and then I started publishing and, and people bought it and loved it. And, and that's what gave me courage. And then I think that given that good first experience, I became a little braver. And so I, I think I lost a lot of that shame and I kind of went all out. And I said, you know what, if my pain and my mistakes help you making less, so be it, fine. You know, let, let's laugh about me so that you don't have to go through the same pain. So what's your definition of creativity? Um, to me, creativity is kind of like brain fireworks, I would say. Um, it's kind of... Like when you have an epiphany of random associations, right, that kind of beautify what is logic and rational. And I think it doesn't matter if you're putting chili pepper on ice cream or if you're writing a book or <laughs> if you're like upcycling a used plastic bottle. I, I really think that creativity is food for the soul. It's something that makes you feel better. It's something that makes you become more in a way that I think rationality couldn't do alone. And it have you received some advice about uh, owning your creativity or staying in the course? What's the best advice that you've received? Um, it's, it's a hard question. Um, I think something that stayed with me was probably a book, of course, uh, that I read in one of the worst times of my life. And it was a book by Gabrielle Roth, uh, who died since actually she passed away. Uh, I think the book was called Connections. And she's a dancer. And she's been dancing and teaching yoga all of her life. Notice, I'm not, a I mean, I'm a crazy dancer. <laughs> I dance as if like I need an exorcism done on, on me. And uh, <laughs> I, I do not do yoga. I've never done yoga. And this is a book that I had bought for a friend. And he never read it. And for some reason, I kept thinking about this book. And eventually, I borrowed it back from him. And I read it. And it was a nonfiction book. And I never read nonfiction. And she was explaining how she found herself through dancing and how she thought of dancing as a spiritual practice and how she said basically that you have to find your way, right? Whatever it is that makes you feel good or better. Um, and as a scientist, I think it took me years to process this thought, but I really tried to apply the scientific method to happiness, right? So how do we make ourselves feel better? I feel that a lot of the things we do give us a big up followed by a big down. You know, you can think of cocaine, of course, but you can also think of having a crush. I think it works very much the same way. Or having a gin and tonic, right? You get that first moment of yay, and then you get that second moment of oh, you right. know, type of down. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that that is not it. And I think that most of us culturally are addicted to these things that are completely a waste of time. And so I realized that I wanted to find out what 
increases my daily average level of happiness? What gives me a steady improvement on the way that I feel every day? And then, you know, you're going to have your highs and your lows. And I realized that writing was one of these things. Like when I write, I completely lose track of time. I can do it anywhere, anytime. And I, I just feel so much better and energized after. And so I think it works for me. And for somebody else, it could be fixing things or crunching numbers or I don't know, doing a podcast, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But I, I think you'll have to find your zone. It sounds like that's a, a perfect example or definition with, that corresponds to Mahali Csikszentmihalyi. Do you know about him? No. Yeah, he's he's a psychologist, and he 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 dedicated his whole career uh, as a psychologist to to find um, how how can we be happy. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. and and so his his idea was the flow. Um, you know that, that with the zone that you talked about is that that's where where we're at um, our our happiest. You know when I, I agree. Yeah, yeah I, I very much agree. Yeah, yeah. Um, so is there a person that inspires you to be creative? I definitely think my husband. Um, he is very creative. Um, he is an architect and a photographer, and he makes beautiful, humorous drawings. Um, and I think in my life, I had several long-term relationships, but he was the one that gave me the courage to be more. In all my other relationships that, sure enough, ended, I feel that my partner was almost scared of my independence, of the things I wanted to do, and they tended to be jealous of my other activities, and they felt threatened by all, all these, these other things that I wanted to do, and, you know, I wanted to travel, and I wanted to, I don't know, whatever it is that I wanted to do at the time. Well, he is very fascinated by these, and he thinks it's awesome, and I think he gave, gave me the courage to go out there. I, I think it takes a lot of vulnerability to be creative, because you know, you put your soul out there and then people are going to speed on it. And it's not <laughs> a great process, you know. And, and it, I think if you have someone close to you that says, listen, no matter what they say, I think you're awesome and I love what you do. That's that's what inspires me and gives me the courage to to do it over and over again, I'd say. Can you share one of your personal habits that contributes to your creative success? I think... Um, being constant in my writing. Uh, writing for me is what I do whenever I have a minute. So it doesn't matter if I'm in my office in between students coming to, you know, seek help for genetics or if I'm in an, at an airport waiting for a flight. If I am idle, I get my computer out and I write. And it doesn't matter if I'm going to throw away all of those words or if I get interrupted every five minutes and they make no sense. If I have time, I write. And eventually, you know, some of those words are good. And eventually they come together in a book. So I, I, I think that's just keep doing it. Just give it all the time you have or all the time you have to dedicate to whatever is that is your zone and acknowledge that it's important for you to feel good and, and to feel better about yourself. Do you have a favorite work of art? It can be any type of art. I, no, I, I have so many songs and I have so many movies to the point that I keep lists of them. <laughs> and I think that... Uh, the trick is that they made me feel that I was not alone at a certain time of my life where I felt very much alone, but relating to somebody else saying, listen, I, I felt the way you're feeling and I survived. That's to me what makes art remarkable. And I think that's also what inspires me to share, you know, my own 
pains and moments of happiness so that I hope I can do the same for somebody else. But I couldn't tell you one in particular. What's the most recent one or off the top of your head, one of them? Um, songs, for sure. I think there are songs associated to times of my life. There's this song that I like very much right now. And I think it's called Ohio. And I couldn't tell you who sings it. So this is not very helpful. But one of the lines, uh, it's talking about a woman going back home after a very long time. And it's sang by a man. And the man is saying that he wish she would stay. And she says, it, it's been a long time, a very long time, you know, since I went back home. And I, I can relate because all of my family is in Italy. And every time I go back, I, I, it moves me. You know, right. I'm like, oh, yes, it's been a very long time. And I feel very emotional when I hear it. Do you have a favorite quote that inspires you? Oh, so many. Um, I guess probably my favorite would be, um, uh, it's super cheesy. And I know everybody knows this quote, but I think it really helped me. Is uh, And just when the caterpillar thought the world was over, it became a butterfly. And, oh, uh, that's lovely. Right? And, and I feel that it really worked for my life. Um, I had so many things going wrong in my life. And every time I felt like I, I was desperate, I didn't know what to do about it. But eventually, I survived. And that made me really stronger. I, I am less afraid. And I am less afraid of feeling because I failed so many times and I survived, right? And so uh, eventually, I did uh, succeed so many times too. And I really think that our failures make us beautiful and brave. And, and so I, I think that's a quote that really helps me. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners before we wrap up? Uh, no, uh, just just be brave and, you know, love yourself. Give yourself a pat on the back and life is hard, but it can be really, really fun too, I'd say. Well, I love what you just said there. Our failures make us beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Yeah, I really think that's the case. I don't know. People think of failure as the end of the road, but it's the end of the road only if you stop trying. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, if you really care for something... Just keep going at it. And I, I really think I tried a lot of things in my life. I tried kickboxing. I wanted to be like the sexy, smart ninja, right? <laughs> and so I went, and this is in my 20s, right, where I thought I could do anything. And so I went to kickboxing, and it hurt. <laughs> People beat me. And I was like, this is stupid. I don't want to do this anymore. And sure enough, I never became a ninja. You know, it was just not my thing. But when you, when you find your thing, it's worth it. Like, no matter... How many times I had to rewrite my first book, I did because it was worth it. And so I think that there are things that you keep and things that you do not keep. And, and that's fine. You know, I heard this, uh, read it somewhere in an article about the writing process that about 10% of what writers write will actually see the light of day. Do you, oh, do yeah. you agree with that? Yeah, maybe even less. Yeah. <laughs> I, just to give you an idea, my books on average are, I would say, seventy to 90,000 words. So I'm writing a first draft now of, oh, it would be in the Italian saga, if we count the first series, would be number seven. So the next one to be published is number five. So I'm three books ahead. And I think I'm 120,000 words in, and I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) 
I'm nowhere near the end. This book is terrible so far, you know, and uh, there are a million characters and it's normal. Now I, I wrote enough books that I know that it's okay and I'll get to 150,000 words and then I'll go back and I'll know what I'm doing and then I'll rewrite the whole thing and slash it and cut it and change the order and, and absolutely that, that's, that's true. It's very true. I would say even less for me, probably less than 10%. But Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been wonderful. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us today. And I hope you will join me in the support of creativity by becoming a patron today at bit.ly forward slash creativity patron. When you become a patron, it means you know that you are not an island and that creativity is meant to be shared. Together, we can make a difference. And as part of the Own Your Creativity community, you are an integral part of the bigger picture. Until next time, own your creativity so that you think, feel, and do better in your personal and professional life.